Let me pray for us. I'm going to pray. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go and open up to Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 22. We're looking at um, one of my favorite stories from Luke's gospel. I know I think I say that every time because they're all really good. So, um, but this is a good one. It's, it's been influential for me as a young Christian in particular. So Luke chapter 8, verse 22 is where we're kicking off. I'm going to pray for us that God would give us ears to hear what he is saying to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what this gathering allows, for time for stillness, for time to switch off and time to hear you speak to us. And Father, we know that you do speak to us through your word, that this book is living and active and powerful. And so I pray now for every person in this room that your spirit would speak today, would convict would transform, would change lives. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. In his strong name, amen. You know, they've done a survey on um, the top uh, list of phobias that people have. I don't know if any of you have got a, a phobia. I don't know if mine has a technical name. You know how they've all got like technical names, something phobia. My phobia is dislocating my hip. I don't know why that is. I think it was because I saw a friend once, we were playing a touch footy game, he went up to catch this ball, he came down, he dislocated his hip, and I think it's probably the most excruciating pain I've ever seen anyone in, maybe close to seeing my wife in in labour. But um, I, I think that's my phobia, right? I just really fear dislocating my hip. There you go. But what they did was they've surveyed people and questioned them on what their phobias and fears are. And here are the top five. Fear number one is Glossophobia. Glossophobia is a fear of public speaking, a fear of what I'm doing right now. And it's reported that 75% of people have glossophobia, some form of fear of standing up in front of people and speaking. Needless to say, I don't think I've ever had that fear. I've been preaching for like 17 years now and all of the, you can do this little test, you know, do you get sweaty palms? Do you freak out? Do you self-doubt? I was like, no, 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 no. I'm overconfident. That's my problem. <laughs> but I, that's not me, all right? So that's number one, 75% of people. Number two is necrophobia, which is a fear of death. That one seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Or number three is arachnophobia. I thought this one would be number one. I thought the fear of spiders would be number one, but it's not. Number three, arachnophobia or uh, aclophobia, which is a fear of darkness. Now, I reckon every kid must have that one because they all seem to be scared of the dark. And some of you still are scared of the dark, aren't you? Yeah, it's all right, you can admit it. This is a safe place. You can be scared of the dark here. Or this one, acrophobia, which is a fear of heights. The top five fears that people have. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that glossophobia, the fear of public speaking, ranks higher than the fear of death. I thought that was an interesting Thing. It's uh, the, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld who made the comment that this means that the average person, for the average person, if you went to a funeral, they would prefer to be the person getting buried in the casket than the person having to give the eulogy, right? It's interesting. And I think the reason is that death doesn't feel imminent. Death doesn't feel likely for us. Whereas Having to give a public speech, that one might come around. 21st, wedding, uni assignment, presentation at work. You might have to do a part. That one feels imminent. And so I think that's why it gets number one. But probably deep down, the one that causes more angst for us is a fear of death. 
In the story that we're about to read this morning from Luke's gospel, we see fear in the eyes and hearts of the disciples. Fear of death, but then fear of Jesus. So let's have a look. Go to Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Luke 8, 22, it says this. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they, wo- and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Now storms like this um, weren't a particularly rare occasion for the disciples of Jesus. You've got to remember that half of these guys worked in the fishing industry their whole life. And so they were familiar with storms. They, they fished during storms. They were familiar with the territory, the topography, uh, the climate, all that sort of stuff. This wasn't foreign to them. But this particular storm is very severe. Both Mark and Matthew, in their version of this event of the life of Jesus, call this storm a great storm, a mega storm, a massive one. Luke here calls it a windstorm. Literally, he's saying it's like a hurricane of wind just descended on the lake. And by all accounts, this is the most severe storm that these seasoned, hardened fishermen have ever faced in their life. The waves are crashing over the boat. The boat's being tossed around uh, the ocean like a a moth in a spa. It is crazy. Uh, They're bailing water out of the boat, but it just doesn't seem they can get the water out fast enough before the next wave comes in and swamps them. And they're sinking. Now, I want you to put yourself there. If you've ever seen the movie um, Perfect Storm, just, just picture that one, all right? Just try and put yourself on the deck of that boat in the middle of that storm as a disciple of Jesus. Feel the wind blowing on your cold cheeks. Feel the rain as it hits your arms and it stings your arms because it's so hard being blown by the wind. Smell the the salty air. Hear the howling of the wind as it blows through the rigging and, and flaps the sail as it changes directions violently. Hear the thunder. Hear the frenzied yelling of the sailors as they try and bark out instructions to each other to try and navigate through this storm. See the thick black clouds looming overhead. See those waves as they stand up and then crash. Look your friends in the eyes and see the fear and feel your heartbeat racing as fear pumps adrenaline around your body. And you think, this is it. I, I'm about to die. In a few moments, this boat is going to be completely swamped with water. It's going to sink. It's going to go down. We're going to be thrown into the freezing cold water. I'm going to be tossed about by waves, trying to keep my head above water, gulping in salty water, coughing it up, treading water until I'm so fatigued that I eventually just drown and die. And that's where the guys are at. That is exactly where they're at. They're freaking out. They think this is it. I'm about to die. I remember in the summer of, I think it was 1997 or 98, I was working for a guy from my church who owned a design company down in Brookvale. And 
Um, we did lots of promotional packaging and I did all the, the assembly line stuff in his warehouse. But these guys had built a surfboard shaping booth out the back of their factory. And so we decided that we were going to go make our own surfboards. So we went and bought blank surfboards, big chunky bit of foam, and we, we um, planed out our own surfboards, resined it up, you know, um, sealed it, fiberglass, all that sort of stuff, just in time for our church's annual surf camp, camp cutback. We'd go up to Foster. And Pete, this guy who I was working for, was one of the camp directors. And so we went up early to set up, took the marquee up, took some tents up, set the campsite up, and we heard that the surf was great in Foster. So we got there. We set up camp at Bull's Paddock on the south end of Seven Mile Beach at Foster, if you've ever been there, Booty Booty National Park. Seven Mile Beach is an unpatrolled, vastly exposed beach. And we went down, we got changed, we walked down to the surf, and it was huge. The waves were breaking in two sections. The furthest section would probably have been maybe 250 to 300 meters off the shore. And it was, I reckon, over 10 foot, 15 foot out there. It was massive. And there were a bunch of surfers out there. And then as the waves rolled in again, they reformed as they hit the shallower sandbank. And there was another set of waves that came crashing into the shore. And the guy who I was surfing with, Pete, was a big guy. We just shaped, I just shaped myself a seven foot six mini mal, and he'd just shaped himself a nine foot mal. And like, I've just finished year 12, and believe it or not, I'm probably five kilos lighter than I am now. And I was like the, the skinniest kid in the whole of school. And I've got this massive seven foot six mal that I, I can't duct it, I can't get it under the water. And so I'm paddling out there, pulling the board on myself and trying to pull it under me. So we're standing on the shore, and I turned to Pete and I said, I'm scared. Like, I'm, I'm genuinely scared. And he looked at me and he said, let's pray. So we got on our knees. We got on our knees in the sand and we prayed for protection as we surfed. And he got in his mouth and off he went, all the way out the back. Now I'm paddling and I uh, paddled, 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 trying to get under these waves, rolling the board over, going under, flipping it. 20 minutes, washed all the way down the beach. Get up, walk back out, have another go. Washed all the way down the beach, can't get out. I'm so tired but I'm determined to just make it past the first little set of waves. Um, and I'm paddling, and I, I get there, and there's this lull, and I'm like, this is it. I put my head down, I go for it, and I look up, and a set has rolled through. And this ginormous wave, and I'm just caught inside. I can't turn around and get out of the way, I can't get under it, and it just lands on top of me and destroys me and pushes me to the bottom. And I don't know where the top from the bottom is, I'm freaking out, and... There's that moment where, as surfers, in your head, you go, relax. And I couldn't do it. You're supposed to relax and just let you know, the, the natural buoyancy of your body take you to the top. And when you figure out, where, I freaked out. I panicked. I started kicking, and I didn't know which direction I was swimming in. I was underwater for way longer than I purposed, like, desired to be. And I was worried about my board hitting me in the head. And I popped up, and my board was there. I grasped the board sucked in some air and braced myself for probably was a four-foot wall of white water that just smashed me and took me to shore, and I crawled out of the water, gasping for air. Now, that's probably the closest I've ever come to drowning or dying, I think. But in that moment, I was freaking out. I was panicking. I, th I thought I was going to drown. And that's where these disciples are. They're in that boat, and that they're at that moment where they think this is it. We're about to die. 
It's interesting, isn't it, then, that whilst everyone else is completely freaking out, Jesus is having a nap in the stern. Right? I mean, we don't really know why. Maybe he was tired, long day. Maybe he's just a naturally deep sleeper and it takes a bit to wake him up. Whatever it is, I think Luke includes this bit to point towards the confidence that Jesus has that his father has appointed, not that he would drown and die at the bottom of Lake Galilee, but that two years later, he would walk into Jerusalem and be crucified on a cross. His time has not yet come. And so he's calm, he's in control, he knows the plan. And then he demonstrates that control in an incredible way. Have a look at verse 24. This is what it says. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. The howling wind just stops. Now, if you're a skeptic, you could think, coincidence, could have been a break in the wind, but not the waves, right? Surely there could have been a break in the wind, but the waves lie flat. This is a, a raging storm that one, one second threatens your life, and then the next is gone. From total chaos to complete calm. And the sense of that word there, there was a calm, is glassy. Like water skiing at 6 a.m. in the morning, glassy. That's what this lake ends up like. Like that, at an instant, at a word. Now my question is, who does that? Who says stop and the wind and the waves obey? Like, who does that? What kind of power would someone have to have to speak with such authority to, nat to nature and it obeys? Put yourself back there for a second. A storm is about to destroy you and take your life. Someone stands up and rebukes it and it lies flat and it is glassy and calm. That is incredible. I remember as a kid, being scared of storms. I don't know if you were scared of storms as a kid, but I grew up in Cape Town and then later in Sydney, both cities renowned for fairly big thunderstorms in summer. And I remember as a kid when thunderstorms would come and the thunder claps and the, the window frames shake. I remember going to my parents' bedroom, out to the TV room and just being scared and, and, and asking them to make it stop. And what did my parents do? Comfort me, they're there, it's all right, it's all right. You know what my dad didn't do? walk out the back step and go, stop, right? It just, he didn't do that because it wouldn't have worked. And the neighbors would have thought he was quite crazy. But the deal is that when ordinary people speak, the wind doesn't listen. When ordinary people command, the waves don't obey. Nature is completely deaf to our demands and pleas and cries. But Jesus with just a few words, completely silences this storm. We're pretty fascinated with nature, I reckon. Well, at least I am. Every time there's a flood, I want to go driving out to see the flood. I remember the floods at Nepean River a few years ago. Me and my friend Jono just took the kids and we went out and checked the flooding out. And you know, every time there's a hailstorm, what happens? Facebook, full of hailstorm videos, earthquakes, floods, you name it. Right, media flocks. There's a fascination about nature, about its unpredictability, about its power, about its force. And here is someone who, with just a few words, can tell creation what to do. And it's easy for Jesus. Right? It wasn't hard for him, was it? Just got up, said, stop, be still, be quiet, and it obeyed. It was a cinch. It's incredible. 
That is phenomenally incredible. In the um, ocean in ancient mythology and um, ancient cultural worship was the pinnacle of a force that was out of control, um, unpredictable, and crazy strong. Almost every culture has some form of deity, God, that controls the ocean and storms. And out of all of the things of life, the ocean was the one thing that was at the top of the list for ancient cultures, including the Jews, including the Greeks and the Romans. And here is Jesus standing on a boat and commanding the most uncontrollable thing, and it obeys. It's incredible. Who does that? The answer is God does that. Only God does that. Check out Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars and puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all people of the world revere him. Or Psalm 89, verse 9, you rule the raging seas. That's God. When the waves rise, you still them. The disciples in the boat that day who had read their Old Testament and knew their Bibles had only one category for what Jesus did that day. God. That was it. This has to be God. If someone can do that, they have to be God. God was the one who spoke creation into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He just spoke, and it happened. God is the one. Who else has such power? Who else has such authority over nature but the person who created it all and made it all? Now, I'm aware that maybe some of you here who are skeptics or or seekers and inquirers would hear a story like that and think, surely you guys don't believe that. I mean, maybe in an era where people were gullible and before the scientific age, yes, maybe people might have believed that stuff, but surely now, surely you don't truly believe that kind of stuff. Now, I want to say, yes, I do. And I don't think I'm stupid. I think I can think logically. And so I want to give you a few reasons for why I believe this event actually took place. But I guess the first assumption you make is that there is a God. If you go all the way back to the beginning, that's... that's Point A, that's the first assumption. There is, is there a God? And I believe there's compelling evidence that God exists. And I believe that most people deep down feel that there has to be something more to this life and this experience than themselves. I believe that as people look around this creation and see the complexity of order, that someone has to have designed this thing and put it together. I believe that as we look at a sense of objective morality and have a, a, distinguished between, a, a distinguishing factor between what, right and wrong, we think, well, where does that come from? I think there's a God. Maybe we don't know who it is. Maybe we're undecided about who he is, but I, I think there's a God. And if there's a God, is it outside of his power and authority and ability to command the creation that he has made? I don't think so. But secondly, the thing about this story that I find compelling is that Luke writes this story as history. And I've said this before. Luke quotes geographical locations. He names political figures and rulers. He talks about times and years and places and locations because what he's writing is history. Luke is not writing fiction. 
If you were to pick up a fiction book from the first century and Luke's, Luke's gospel, the literary style and genre is vastly different. Fiction was not written the way it is written today, like the Da Vinci Code, right? You get the Da Vinci Code, it's a fictional book written in a way that makes you believe it's actually true. They, they didn't write fiction like that in the first century. So either what we have here is an eyewitness account of actual events, or Luke is about 2,000 years ahead of his time in terms of literary style. I think what we've got is an eyewitness account of actual events that happened that Luke recorded and wrote down. I mentioned last week, the New Testament's reliable. But outside of the New Testament, we've also got evidence of this. There are a number of opponents, people who didn't particularly like Jesus, people who weren't on the Christian's team, who wrote about this person, Jesus. Uh, The Jewish uh, writings called the Talmud mention Jesus, the miracle worker. Jewish historian Josephus mentions Jesus, the miracle worker. Now the difference is they attribute the power that Jesus had to sorcery and demons. But what they didn't deny was that Jesus performed miracles because they saw it with their eyes. And fourthly and finally, these men that walk around with Jesus, that stand in the boat that day, worship Jesus. And you know, one of those guys is Jesus' brother, James. Now, I don't know about you. What would it take for you to worship your sibling? All right, what would it take? It would take a lot of convincing for me to worship my little brother, Jono. All right, these guys worship Jesus. They're compelled by him. And so I think as we read this story, I'm not checking my brain out at the door. I'm convinced and compelled by the evidence that this event actually took place. Now maybe that's not convincing for you and that's all right. Maybe there needs to be more discussion and dialogue and thinking. But but at least admit this. If this is true, if Jesus can tell waves and wind what to do, that changes everything, right? It has to. It has to change everything. The only category I have for an event like this and a person like this is God. Well, after the storm, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them a question. This is what he says, verse 25. Jesus said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Now that might seem a bit harsh. Think these guys are about to die? Surely in the face of death, panic and freaking out is entirely appropriate. But not for these guys, not for these men. They'd, they'd seen too much. These guys have already seen that Jesus controls things that are uncontrollable. I mean, they've been there. They've seen Jesus casting demons out of people. They've seen Jesus making a paralyzed man walk again. They've seen Jesus heal a man's hand that was withered and shriveled. They saw Jesus talking to a centurion who said, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. And Jesus speaks from a distance and he's healed. And they've seen Jesus walk up to a widow's son and raise him from the dead out of a coffin. In fact, the first encounter that many of these men had with Jesus was in a boat, in a fishing boat. What did Jesus do? He commanded fish to come and fill the nets. And there was this miraculous catch that filled two boats. And what does Peter do? He falls on his knees and says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. These guys have encountered Jesus' power over uncontrollable events. They've seen enough. And so their response not shouldn't be panic, it should be faith. 
I think what Jesus wanted that day was that his disciples would come to him and wake him up and say, Master, Master, we know that you're in control of all things. We've seen with our eyes what you can do. And we're afraid of this storm and we're placing our trust in you to come and stop it and rescue us. And if we die, maybe you could raise us again from the dead like you did the widow's son. Faith, that's what Jesus wants. Not panic, not freaking out. Mark chapter four, Mark's version of this story, he says that he includes a little phrase that Luke doesn't put in. He says the disciples came to Jesus and said, don't you care? Don't you care about us, Jesus? Don't you care if we drown? How can you be sleeping at a moment like this? And they doubt the goodness of Jesus. And that's the issue. See, they know Jesus is powerful. We've seen it. They just doubt whether he's good. Something happens in their life that threatens their comfort, their plans, their security, and they just doubt whether or not Jesus actually loves them. Now, I don't know if you find yourself there. If events have happened in your life that rock the boat, you feel helpless, you feel completely out of control, and it seems at least to you that God is asleep. I don't know what it might be. It could be health. And I know that for some of you that is pertinent and real. It could be relationship breakdown. It could be financial insecurity. And the storm hits. And you just feel like God's not answering your prayers. And you begin to question, is God really there? Does he really care for me? Does he really love me? If that's you, I want to say to you this. God, God can love you and at the same time allow you to walk through the storm. God can love you and at the same time allow you to walk through the storm. He did that with Jesus, did he not? Loved him all the way to the cross and walked Jesus through the storm. If you're there, know this. God does love you. And the greatest demonstration of the love of God is the cross where Jesus went and died for your sin. God could not give you any more than what he did in sending his son. What does faith look like through the storm? Faith might look like this. God, this sucks. I don't like it, but I know your work. I know you're powerful. I know you're in control of all things. I know that you're good. So would you please help me to trust you? Intervene where you can, but help me to cling to Jesus. I think that's what faith looks like in the storm. Because here's the deal, if we believe that God is in control of everything, do we need to freak out? Jesus lay asleep in the boat, firm in the grip of his Father's plan that he would not die at the bottom of the ocean, but die on the cross. God is in control of everything. You know, there's a song a line in a hymn that Wesley wrote that says this, with Christ in the vessel, we smile at the storm. With Christ in the vessel, we smile at the storm. Now that's not easy, is it? But faith allows us to at least attempt that. Faith allows us to be on that journey because of the unmatchable power of Jesus and because of his goodness for us.
Let's have a look at the verse, uh, second half of verse 25. The disciples are here, and they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the wave and the waters? And they obey him. Who is this? The initial fear of the disciples at the storm just flips to Jesus. Who is this? Recognize his majesty. And if Jesus' power is, is unpredictable like the storm, infinitely more powerful than the storm, the disciples stand in that boat and they think, maybe it's not safe in here with this person who has that power and that authority. Who is this? I think that's the most important question anyone could ever ask. Who is Jesus? I think it is. The question of the identity of Jesus is the most important question you could ask. And the answer to that question will shape and determine your future. That's why Luke records it. That's why this event is here. To prompt our thinking about the identity of Jesus. And I think this story corners us because we can't just put Jesus in the nice guy box. We can't just put Jesus in the good moral teacher box. We can't put Jesus in the influential figure of history box. The only box that Jesus fits in is the God box. That's what we're left with if these events are true and happened. If Jesus has authority over nature, he has to be God. If he has authority over nature, of which I'm a part, then he has to have authority over me. And he has to have authority over you. It changes everything. If the oceans obey Jesus, then surely we have to as well. Maybe you've never really considered that question of the identity of Jesus. And my encouragement for you is to explore that question because that's what we're about at Anchor. We're about introducing people to the hope that only Jesus can offer. We would love you to see Jesus as you meet him in the pages of Scripture. See Jesus in the lives of our community as he radically transforms us and experience him as he works in your heart. That's our hope for you. This week I was reading an article that claimed that fear of death is a young person's problem. That old people don't fear death because they've lived a long life and they're ready. I'm not really entirely sure how true that is or not. I think deep down everyone fears death no matter what age, no matter what stage of life they're in. We fear death for lots of reasons. We fear dying alone. We fear dying painfully. We fear dying too young when we don't get to experience all of life. But I think deep down we fear what's on the other side. We fear what might happen to us. This week the Australian government along with national security, raised our terrorism risk to high. A terror attack in Australia is likely. It's not very comforting, is it? To think that a terrorist attack could happen on our shores strikes fear in our hearts. It reminds us of images of 9-11, which we just remembered this week, the anniversary of. Fear of dying. We're all in the queue, every single one of us. And when our number is up, it's up. We don't know whether it's going to happen quickly or slowly. But death lies ahead. 
And my question for you this morning is, does that freak you out? Are you afraid of dying for whatever reason? There was one disciple of Jesus who certainly was not. His name was Paul. He is quoted as saying this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. Wow. There's no fear there. There's no fear in to die is gain. How can that possibly be the case? Fear of death melts away in the face of a saviour who has died on the cross and then risen again. Jesus has conquered death. He's risen from the grave. And he promises that those who have faith will be like him, raised like him, given new bodies like him. That's why Paul can say, death is not loss. Death is gain. Because I gain Christ. I gain a new body. I gain perfection. It's gain. A friend of mine um, at the church where I got saved um, developed leukemia quite young. She was 23. She was in our Bible study group. And uh, she went through a whole year of treatments and got to the point where the doctors said to her, there's nothing more we can do. You are going to die. And she would come to our Bible study and towards the end of her life, she would bring her respirator tank and she would sit there struggling to breathe in our Bible study group as we sat there with Bibles open, tears in our eyes, praying for her that God would heal her. And he chose not to. He took her to be with him. She loved Jesus. And I remember her funeral. I remember her mum giving the eulogy, incredibly powerful. And then I remember her brother, Mike, getting up. Mike was a lot older than me, and he and his wife were preparing to go to an undisclosed location in um, the Middle East to be missionaries. And he stood up in front of the church, a large group of people there, and he read a verse from the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And I will never forget the verse. I mean, it's imprinted, but I will never forget the way he read it, the passion that he read it with. Where, O victory, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. There's a man who is burying his sister and testifies to the fact that death is not gain, that death has not won, that Jesus has won because he rose again from the dead. That's powerful. Death has been swallowed up in the victory of Christ. There is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's 1 John 4.17. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. You know what I fear about death? I don't fear what lies on the other side. Probably nervous about dying in pain or dying alone. But the thing I fear most about death is dying and not being able to care for my family. That's what I fear. But you know what I don't fear? I don't fear what lies ahead of me. I don't fear what happens that moment that I die and wake up and meet Jesus face to face. What's there to fear there? That's gain. That's gain. And friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel that Jesus has died and risen again to give us hope, to fix the problem of our sin, to take that punishment so that we would not fear death. And that means that we now don't walk in fear of that. We walk in victory 
We walk in the victory of the resurrection of Jesus. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It is gone. Jesus is victorious. That's good news for every person in this room. If you're afraid of what would happen to you when you die, Jesus has the answer. And we would love to make that real for you. If you don't know that, then maybe today is an opportunity to accept the death of Jesus on your behalf, to deal with the punishment for sin and to take away that fear. But for the rest of us who love Jesus and serve him and worship him and spend all of this life chasing after a joy that's fleeting, spend all of this life trying to maximize now because we're not focused on what lies ahead, Maybe we need to turn our eyes again and realize that there's probably fear in our heart that's causing us to live like that and remember the gospel and walk in the victory of Christ's resurrection. Maybe today you see why Jesus is so compelling for us here at Anchor because of who he is. He's phenomenal. We hope you know him and love him. We're gonna respond to this Jesus now as we worship him. We respond in a couple of ways. We've got two stations out the front here with bread and grape juice, symbols that represent the body and blood of Christ, that that body was broken on the cross, that his blood was shed for your forgiveness. We ask that you take a moment to reflect on the gospel, reflect on what God has done for you. And as your heart is ready and led, as you've done business with God, repented of sin, ask that he would impress the gospel on your heart again today. Come forward Dip the bread in the grape juice, eat it, and remember what Jesus has done. We're also going to be praying. Brian and I will be over here in the foyer. And if you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. Maybe you would like to receive Jesus today for the first time. Please come. We would love to pray for you. We're going to invite the band up now. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to respond in praise and worship to our risen King Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is in control of everything. There is nothing that does not obey you. We rejoice, Father, in the fact that you made us, you created us, you own us because of that. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who demonstrates your power and authority over all things. And Father, we know so often we're like the disciples in the midst of a storm, we freak out. Sometimes we doubt your goodness. I pray for those who find themselves there today. Please help them cling to Jesus, our only hope. And Father, I pray that you would impress on our hearts again this morning the reality of the resurrection that makes all fear of death dissolve in the face of Christ. Help us see him this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.